hello? Hello, is this Dr. Blake? Yes, it is. Hi, Molly, is that you? Yes, it is. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm holding up. It's a wild time. This is Dr. Felice Blake, professor of African-American literature, black studies, and gender and sexuality at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Blake has published numerous writings on these subjects, including two novels entitled Black Love, Black Hate, Intimate Antagonisms in African-American Literature, and Anti-Racism, Inc., Why the Way We Talk About Racial Justice Matters. I was lucky enough to be one of her students this past spring, and I'm excited to speak with her about these topics at such a tumultuous time in American history. So my first introduction to you was when I took your class the spring of my junior year. The class was on black culture, especially poignant because it was during the riots that were happening across the United States. Um, but for you, when did you begin your specialization in African-American literature and gender and sexuality studies? Hmm. Well, that's actually an interesting question um, uh, framed, you know, in relation to uh, the spring and being on Zoom and the uprisings and protests that we've been seeing. So I was an undergraduate at UCLA in the early 90s, and that was, of course, also the period, um, you know, in 1991 when Rodney King was brutally beaten by multiple uh, L.A. Uh, police officers. And, of course, the ensuing L.A. uprising the following year uh, was all a part of my undergraduate experience. So those things really had a tremendous impact on me as an undergraduate um, and as someone who was just starting out, uh, you know, studying literature. I was an English major um, as an undergrad. And so really thinking about what we were living at that time um, and then really wanting to understand why we weren't learning about those things as we were otherwise reading literature or being required, you know, to read Shakespeare, Chaucer, Milton, um, but really not engaging with these questions that, of course, are in those texts as well and were a part of the landscape. So it really was, again, that very tumultuous time, but also a time that um, I think for a lot of people really uh, brought them to asking these critical questions about their knowledge, about their knowledge base, uh, what was a part of education. And so for me, it really began in a, in a similar time um, as we are in today. And the most poetic element of Blake's class analyzed how black literature born of a learned white academia questions this education system that sought to marginalize the black writer and thus the black voice. This system created a cyclical pattern of revolt and destruction, making society choose, as Larry Neal eloquently put it, whose vision of the world is finally more meaningful, the black or the white. I discovered that during Neil's era around the 1940s and 50s, black writers were heavily influenced by the Communist Party. However, as Helen Mary Washington states in The Other Blacklist, black communist groups didn't view communism as their saving grace, but realized it was the only major American political party that formally opposed discrimination and, in joining them, allowed blacks to fight against white racial brutality. In regard to black literature, Washington even proposes that there is a philosophical compatibility between communism and African-American literature. 
because black writers were offered the institutional support of Communist Party clubs, committees, and publications, a space that they weren't offered anywhere else in white America. The 1954 Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision brought integrationalist narratives that had been circulating at the time to light. Black students questioned whether true universality could be achieved unless racial themes of blackness and black characters were completely eliminated from books. Challenging the U.S. State Department's support of racially segregated schools, the radical left, along with African Americans, actually rejected the notion that racism is psychologically developed by the individual, something that had been held by white leaders up until this point, and helped redefine racism as perpetuated by colonialist institutions and systemically unjust infrastructure. So now I wanted to talk a little bit about some of your published work. I know you have a book published entitled Black Love, Black Hate. And I just wanted to discuss with you the inspiration behind writing this, as well as some of the themes that you explore throughout the novel. Yeah, well, again, interestingly enough, (laughs) back to my undergraduate days, you know, um, there was an event that happened uh, at UCLA. Again, this is the early 90s. It was uh, again, in the aftermath of the beating of Rodney King, of the uprising and the L.A. rebellion, as people often refer to it. But there was an event uh, held on campus that was called Dissed by Your Own Kind. And it was meant to be a forum of black students on campus to talk about the kinds of uh, conflicts that were occurring between black students at UCLA. And people were really invested in uh, understanding um, uh, why it was so difficult to build solidarities uh, amongst Black students on the campus, especially in such a, a critical time as that. And during that forum, uh, people aired a lot of grievances. Um, again, as people might imagine, you know, in relation to class distinctions, um, in relation to uh, issues of homophobia, um, in issues related to sexism, um, sort of uh, conflict between, say, uh, student athletes and uh, other students. Um, so there were a number of issues, uh, you know, things about colorism, uh, again, just a number of issues that got aired during this um, student town hall that got me thinking, again, critically about um, how we talk about, right, conflicts uh, between Black people that doesn't just lapse into the really problematic discourse of sort of Black-on-Black, right, violence or conflict, but really trying to understand how a conversation about differences between us could certainly also lead to uh, an opening for thinking about points of solidarity, So again, way back to my undergraduate experiences, I started to think about those questions and then what it might mean to the study of literature, which tended to focus on uh, the color line, let's say. So how does black writing uh, impact white readers or uh, how does it shape um, uh, ideas of freedom or how black people are recognized by a greater white world? And I was really much more interested in talking about the ways that black writers really were using instances of intra-racial conflict to raise larger questions about conceptions of identity, conceptions of freedom, uh, of transformation, and so on. So again, a lot of the work that I've produced is 
um, you know, resultant from a lot of life experience, uh, experiences in education uh, during these kind of turbulent, challenging times, and then using that to think critically about the sort of intellectual work that I do and how that might connect again to, uh, again, what people might call, you know, more on the ground um, um, uh, work that is transformative. And uh, this subject of interracial hate and violence and subjectivity is something that your class really opened up my eyes to. In the opening, as well as throughout Dr. Blake's book, she draws on a moment in Toni Morrison's novel, The Bluest Eye. At this point in the novel, Charlie and Darlene are discovered making love by white hunters who force them to finish for their own entertainment. Charlie ends up expressing his anger about his racialized powerlessness, as Dr. Blake writes, by directing his hatred towards Darlene rather than the white men. They were both subject to the racism they had just endured, but Charlie does not realize his part in her rape and shame, and she becomes a symbol of his degradation. Blake comments that intimate antagonisms repurpose these racially produced tensions intraracially. At the end of her book, Blake recounts the events that occurred on campus at UCLA, where black women expressed their anger towards black men for perpetrating acts of intersubjectivity and defining blackness or racial identity upon skin color and socioeconomic status. Black women were not only alienated by their white curriculum, but felt invisible to black men. This trope of intimacy is something that we also touched on in class through Mari Evans' poem, I Am a Black Woman. In the poem, we realize that black pain is a collective pain, even though it's felt individually, but also that black women's pain will always be secondary to the black man. Her poem is a black feminist critique and interracial critique of how black power recenters the black patriarchy. And I think that applying these themes learned from the literature we studied to modern institutions is important. It's important for prison reform, as you discussed in your TEDx talk. You mentioned something that really resonated with me about incarceration and violence and exploitation. It was safety is organized by a logic of segregation. I mean, recently prisoners were paid like one to three dollars to risk their lives to go and fight fires. And the prison system is an institution which is propped up by the disproportionate effect of our judiciary system on black communities. If you could discuss with me a bit more about this TEDx talk, I'd love to discuss these themes of abolition within these institutions that mimic slave labor. Mm, mm. Yeah, you know, so, so as you're saying, you know, thinking about that logic of segregation, um, racism of xenophobia of, say, borders and so on, um, if we understand those connections to this thing we refer to as uh, a prison industrial complex, right? Um, this is in part or one of the reasons why I'm not one who agrees with reform. Um, I don't think that we could, for example, reform Jim Crow to make it more palatable. I mean, the notion of Jim Crow was separate but equal. Um, so that kind of reformist logic we can see doesn't really work to bring about the kind of transformation that we actually need. And so the language of, well, one, the language of abolition, uh, as well as the sort of um, imaginative exercise that it demands of all of us, right? What happens when we say locking people in cages isn't what we do, 
that this notion of punishment, as we know, connected to uh, regulating bodies uh, in terms of gender, sexuality, race, citizenship, so on and so forth, when we recognize that um, we don't want to keep reproducing those same systems of punishment that reinforces that logic of segregation or separation, then it is an opening for us to start imagining other possibilities. So I really um, have tried to use that language, again, of an opening up, an opening of the imagination. That is what becomes apparent to us, right, once we start to say, okay, let's think about something else. Is there another way? And that, again, is about building that vision, building it collectively about a world that we do not yet inhabit, but what could actually be. I think as we are seeing, again, with the global pandemic, the kind of environmental catastrophes that we face, the blatant instances of racist violence, um, all of these kinds of issues that we see confronting us, the many, many, many calamities that are facing us, uh, not just in this country, but throughout the world. I think it's such an important moment for us really to be thinking very seriously and with pleasure and, again, imagination about what it is we want to see after this, right? What is that world yet to come? And to really be about building that vision. Yeah, and talking about Jim Crow and the separate but equal doctrine doesn't match the meaning of equality. I think that when people think of equality, there's an element of unity. So the separate part undermines what the doctrine is trying to reform. And this is actually a great transition to another question I had. How do you feel about there being more of an interdisciplinary collaboration between departments at the university level or even the high school level? It almost reminds me of intersectionality, but in thinking about how we learn through that lens. How would it help students understand their concepts in STEM, history, language, of course English, by including and even highlighting the history of Black contributions to these fields? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's actually a really interesting question, you know. Um, uh, as scholars of, of texts, of literature, again, we're reminded, as Toni Morrison might say, you know, we, we work with language. It is imperfect, but, you know, this is one of the tools that we are working with in, in trying to uh, give language or give representation to uh, ideas, affects, feelings, and so on. So right now, of course, interdisciplinarity uh, is a term that we do use as a way of trying to to really be critical, right, about the disciplines and what they do. They discipline, right, and the kind of frameworks that they create that allow us to see certain things and then certainly disallow us, right, um, uh, to see other things. So I think, you know, in that sense, as people think, you know, of an interdisciplinary approach, there's a real usefulness to that. But I also think that we might, you know, um, you know, think about, say, some of the people that we read together in class. So someone like James Baldwin was, of course, a fiction writer, but he was also an essayist. He was a critique of a uh, cultural critic. Um, in many ways, he was a historian. Uh, he wrote a lot about music. He wrote a lot about travels, politics, about film, about television. 
right? So when we start to think about the way that someone like James Baldwin moved, he moved in these various ways because he was looking for um, openings, right? Uh, different uh, tools, different uh, pathways for expressing some of these critical um, ideas, um, uh, possibilities for articulating visions of freedom and possibility, uh, for creating uh, languages of love, right, that could be transformative. And so it wasn't so much for him about being um, a part of a specific discipline or multiple disciplines, but how one moves in a way that can produce um, an expression, uh, a representation that serves this greater good or this greater purpose around transformation. You know, if we think about um, the history of education in this country, again, something that we also looked at in class, again, we know that uh, when disciplines were formed, uh, they certainly weren't taking, um, including black people maybe as objects, but certainly not in terms of of who was defining, right, what a discipline was or what it was meant to do. And oftentimes these things were created as ways of describing how black people were, again, only objects, but incapable of being knowledge producers. So we know that there's a very uh, tense relationship, we might say mildly, between how we think about a discipline and our current um, moves to make these sort of critiques of institutional and structural racism, even in education. And so these kind of broader visions or approaches, again, Zorno Hurston uh, comes to mind as well, trained as an anthropologist, but also an essayist, also a novelist, also a folklorist, right? So again, was it about a discipline or interdisciplinarity, or was it uh, about how one finds and uses tools that best serve this purpose of a transformative uh, knowledge production or educational possibility. So that's some of my thinking about, um, yeah, this disciplinary question. And I hope that people continue to, to discuss it critically. And coming off of that, instead of looking at learning as interdisciplinary, but about garnering tools of knowledge, do you recommend or would you recommend that politicians and leaders read this literature? I mean, just looking at Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, like, yes, it is literature, but often these writings are rife with political commentary and reflect the politics of the day. Right. Yeah, I think that's really a great question. You know, one of the other publications um, that I have out there, it's a collection called Anti-Racism, Inc. This is with Punctum Books, and it's an open access um, text. So it's free to the public, and anyone can find it, download it, and read it. But one of the things that um, I write with a co-editor in the introduction uh, specifically about a figure like Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, is the way that he is often invoked. Um, again, we discussed briefly in class, you know, the ways that people uh, love to make the reference to King, uh, especially to the sort of uh, colorblind uh, assumptions uh, um, that get associate, uh, associated with King, right? We want to be uh, judged by the content of our character, not skin color, as a kind of colorblind approach that 
denies, right, or refuses to pay attention to racism and how it functions in our society. So while I absolutely do want people to read, to engage with, um, with texts that emerge from uh, various black communities, again, around the world, I think it's also important for us to realize the ways that, you know, oftentimes people can engage with these texts, but still walk away um, with their um, skewed or racist viewpoints still intact. You know, I think about the film uh, Hidden Figures uh, that was so popular just a few years ago, and the way that it describes um, a kind of investment in uh, white male, uh, white patriarchy, uh, particular forms of masculinity, even if it were to come at the detriment, right, of a collective good, rather than acknowledging that black people, black women might have knowledge, right, or capabilities that could be, right, beneficial to all of us. So although people love the film so much, uh, it, we don't necessarily see how that was transformative, right, of our thinking. And it really should have been an indictment, but it was sort of celebrated and we moved along. So I do think, again, while it's important that we engage with these various texts, it's also important that we keep challenging, right, um, all of us. Uh, people, institutions, and so on, on these investments uh, and commitments to the racial status quo. And on this topic of colorblindness, and you referenced Dr. King and judging people on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin, it almost glosses over the problems associated with race and in assuming this facade of openness and being colorblind, people are actually ignoring what the issues are and unknowingly become a blind perpetrator to those issues. And per your other publication, Why the Way We Talk About Racial Justice Matters, I wanted to ask you about performative activism, which I've read about and seen being discussed on social media. What is your advice on how to not necessarily not be a performative activist, but on how to effectively implement transformation and change rather than falling trapped to colorblindness and not addressing the problems associated with color. Right. Yeah. You know, I think we all have to start somewhere, you know. Um, one of the things that we're seeing uh, with people out in the street, uh, with strikes, with protests, uprisings, um, I think what we're seeing has been so irresistible, right, to a lot of people. And folks really do want to get involved and they do want to participate and they do want to, to be a part of what, of, of a kind of uh, culture, right, of, of radical transformation. And I do think that that is very exciting. You know, again, we all have to start somewhere. Um, for someone, it might begin with uh, uh, engaging with a slogan. Again, what we would hope is that one continues to educate oneself um, to develop, right, um, the kind of understanding that enables us to, um, again, not just be performative, right, in our activism, but to also be transformed uh, as we are working on transforming society. So I often say to students, you know, we might begin by asking ourselves, okay, you know, what is happening 
um, in my local area? What are people doing? How are they moving? And again, to educate ourselves about the kind of work that's already happening where we are, where we live. In that process, we also ask ourselves, what do I need to learn, right? What do I need to understand? What tools do I have to offer to this ongoing struggle that's happening again around me? And so at every step of the way, we're both uh, examining ourselves. We're also thinking locally, even as we're paying attention to things happening in uh, national or global scales, but we're also looking at, right, wherever we may live, shop, <laughs> work, uh, go to school, uh, and so on. And at every step, it's also a process of education, that this is what we're describing, uh, a very long struggle that's been ongoing and, again, will continue uh, as we move towards the kind of transformation uh, that is necessary for this new world that we're trying to create. So it's a constant process, again, of checking in with oneself, of being in harmony with one's local situation of education and building collectivity. But that, again, happens as we shift and transform consciousness. So, again, that offers people so many opportunities for participation, right, from how one's own consciousness is actively being shifted and changed, how one is participant in the kind of education that occurs as we participate in movement, uh, that there's respect for this ongoing and long struggle, uh, that there's recognition for uh, other actors uh, who are in movement, and that we also recognize what we do have to offer to struggle, and we commit, right, our tools to that as well. So it's that kind of uh, back and forth, right, um, between ourselves and environment and others. So, again, I'm wanting everyone, right, as we're seeing, um, beautiful, right, representations of people standing up, and as irresistible as that is, we want to participate by uh, engaging with ourselves, consciousness, education, collectivity as we move. And even before speaking with you now, you inspired me so much because you created a space that was open and accepting of us all and acted as a safe place for garnering those tools of knowledge so that we could then go out and be active and transformative in the community. You know, before going into this class, I, I thought a lot of the discussion was going to be very political and sensitive considering the riots and attacks on the black community this past spring. But you brought together a group of students from all walks of life. And I know at the end of class, a bunch of us were crying and <laughs> making plans to start a book club in your honor. And as a professor, I wanted to know what your thought process was going into teaching this class. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, my commitment is to, you know, engaging other minds. Um, part of the way that I do that is obviously through the set of texts that I put together on the syllabus. Uh, you know, I have goals for what I want students to walk away uh, knowing um, by the time that we're finished during those 10 weeks. And it's always challenging. You know, I think 
um, you know, when it comes to conversations about race, about gender, about sexuality, you know, generally all of us show up presuming we have some thinking, opinions, attitudes about this. But the real um, sort of um, commitment to um, a transformative type of education around that is what I'm interested in fostering. And I think that that takes time. You know, I think that we certainly do build over the 10 weeks of the quarter uh, in terms of our own collectivity. Uh, you were describing uh, people's tears at the, at the end of class. But again, that's also a demonstration of the degree to which we had sort of um, formed, right, into a collective um, where we had uh, shared readings. Uh, where we developed some shared vocabulary, uh, some shared understanding, and we're able to have a conversation around those ideas. Um, so I think sort of what happened there is a part of what I was describing in terms of uh, thinking about an activist sort of posture or stance that we learn, we study, we read, we develop, uh, knowledge and understanding that helps us produce collective knowledge, shared language and vocabularies, um, and then also relations between us uh, in a commitment to uh, understanding these ideas and seeing ourselves in relation to them. So that's ultimately um, what you described, thank you, is really what I want to foster. And oftentimes, um, you know, it's it's not always uh, as as it was during our class. Obviously, we were dealing with the pandemic and many other things. But certainly, that is you know the goal that we can see the way that collective study right can is also productive of collectivity, and that can continue beyond the classroom. So it means a lot to me that. Um, that that was the student's reaction to or at the end of our course together. That's exactly what it is that I want to produce. And I think what was so great about this class is that each class was genuinely a discussion. We collaborated and joined ideas and analyzed the text. And it was about the collective, exactly what you just said. Your class was very different from the solitary read-write, read-write pattern <laughs> I've experienced in other communities classes. I truly felt I was achieving more with others who also were scholarly and trying to learn. It was great. I actually felt like I had peers and other perspectives challenging my own. So I guess my final question for you is, what would you recommend to a student or anyone who's trying to dive more into this topic? Um, what would you suggest they should read or even watch, like a film or documentaries? Um, well, that's a good, big question that I should be able to answer quickly. You know, I, um, um, so, hmm, so, so there's, there's many places to begin, um, you know, for some, hmm, so depending on, on where it is one wants to begin, you know, I think for understanding some of the broader structural issues, you know, Angela Davis, of course, is, is wonderful here, thinking about uh, questions around policing prisons, the prison industrial complex. 
Uh, I think Ruth Wilson Gilmore is also fantastic here for understanding um, sort of the the structural component of uh, politics as well uh, in relation to prisons um, uh, and prison growth and expansion. Uh, Dorothy Roberts is someone that I teach often who does a lot for us in helping us to understand um, issues related to uh, welfare, um, control over um, reproduction, uh, especially black women's reproductive capabilities, um, uh, thinking about the welfare state. Um, I often teach George Lipsitz, The Possessive Investment in Whiteness, which I find also really useful in thinking about the sort of um, counter-revolution to civil rights and black power. So this sort of post-civil rights era um, transformations uh, and, and sort of backlash to the gains that were um, produced um, during that period. Um, I think those are some people that help us a lot with these kind of broader structural issues. Um, many people have been reading um, Captive Genders. This is edited by uh, Eric Stanley that, again, is thinking about um, gender, um, transgender identities and critiques of the prison system. Um, you know, in terms of literature, there are any number of texts. I'm hoping to uh, start up an abolition reading group on campus uh, during the fall, but uh, I also teach a course on this. Um, uh, there's a great novel, Dessa Rose, again, that's a sort of neo-slave narrative, but also really making this connection between uh, that history of enslavement and thinking about uh, carcerality. Um, Sarah Haley comes to mind, her book, No Mercy's Here, uh, about black women and uh, the chain gangs, uh, critiques of gender and so on there as well. Um, there's really so much. Um, uh, there's, a, there's just a number of resources um, that people can, can um, enter into the conversation. But at the end of the day, you know, I would uh, just encourage people to start with one text, you know, look at their footnotes, look at their bibliographies and start reading from there. People can look at the Critical Resistance uh, website. Uh, many of these organizations have been producing syllabi and reading lists, as well as reading groups that people can participate in. So there's all kinds of resources right now out there uh, for people who are looking to you know, to read and or read collectively. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to list out all those recommendations. I really do respect your opinion tremendously. And thank you so much yet again for what a wonderful class this last spring quarter. It is, you know, a goal for myself as well as you and my other peers that I met through this class to stay learning, always stay learning. Um, well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, the only thing that I would say is just thank you. You know, I'm so grateful that you were a part of the course. I'm so happy to hear um, what students continue to do. I'm very, very grateful for that commitment to intellectual curiosity and, and lifetime learning. So I'm just grateful that we had a chance to meet and work together. Yes, I'm so grateful for that as well. And hopefully I can squeeze another class in before the end of my college career. Yes. Be, let's be in touch. Yes, I will <laughs> definitely be keeping in touch. And I hope to see you in person soon. Yeah, same here.
So I wanted to close out this podcast episode with a little discussion of one of the vocabulary words that we discussed in class. Well, this one is politics of respectability, and it's a phrase, I'd say, that kept coming up throughout my time in Dr. Blake's class. It has little to do with actual respect, but describes more how the white gaze projects onto black people and black life and dictates how it is seen and represented. In society and in literature, black people felt that the black image was so poorly and demeaningly represented that they thought the more normative they could act, the more protected within society that they would be. I'd like to not only thank Dr. Blake once again for taking the time to speak with me, but I'd also like to acknowledge the black writers that shaped my learning in Dr. Blake's class. Zora Neale Hurston, Mari Evans, James Baldwin, Audre Lorde, Larry Neal, Ralph Ellison, Hoyt Fuller, Addison Gale Jr., Anne Petrie, Mary Helen Washington, Langston Hughes, County Cullen, Gwendolyn Brooks, Sonia Sanchez, and of course Toni Morrison to name a few. Please read these writers. It is so important to society's understanding of black culture and images, the black aesthetic, and the black experience in America that we do. Reading black literature is one of the keys to dissolving the racial strife we are currently experiencing and have been for centuries. Once again, this is Molly McEnany signing off from this episode of Ephemeral. Thanks for listening.